When I started working in radio, I was in a newsroom of two people in rural Alaska, and my new boss asked me if I was a hunter. I said no, and I thought, well, this might be an invitation. That might be fun. But then he issued the one non-negotiable rule we had in our newsroom that I could never, ever be on vacation during the opening day of deer season. On the plus side, I got the whole newsroom to myself that day. Hunting matters to a lot of people. Opening day in Michigan, November 15th, is a big deal, especially here up north. But fewer and fewer people are hunting, and that is more than just a a piece of trivia. It could have a real impact on the entire state. We'll explain this week on the Up North Lowdown from Interlochen Public Radio. That story, plus we remember an important person in the development of Interlochen Center for the Arts, who was also responsible for one of public radio's most famous duos. We're clicking Clack the Tap Brothers. Thanks for listening, and don't drive like my brother. Don't drive like my brother. But first, we're going to talk about climate change and what Michigan is doing about it. Michigan lawmakers wrapped up their work for 2023 this week. They are heading home a little early. Climate change was a key part of their agenda this session, including measures that would give state officials more power than local authorities in where to put solar and wind projects. There's also a big, bold move in their climate legislation this year. They are requiring 100% of the state's electricity to come from clean sources by the year 2040. Izzy Ross is here to help us understand all of this. She covers climate change for IPR and for Grist. And uh, Izzy, first of all, hello. Hello. (laughs) What are they up to in Lansing? What's going on? Let's start with this bill that lawmakers approved, giving the state the final say in these large renewable energy projects like solar or wind. Right. So until now, township authorities had final say over whether those projects got built. And many have blocked developments, especially in recent years and especially because residents pressured them to. John Roth is a Republican representative from Interlochen, and he says Democrats pushed through this legislation with without enough discussion. And he says it has major implications here in northern Michigan. The north has all the property that's open to do this. And there's going to be a big push to take over a lot of properties in northern Michigan for wind and solar projects. Companies do have to work with local governments first under this new legislation, depending on the local permitting process. But Roth doesn't think that's enough. You can have local control as long as you say yes. You cannot say no and still have local control. On the other hand, Democrats said the change was needed to reach these clean energy goals and kind of circumvent a lot of the local debates around these projects. Yeah, okay, so that's the conversation in Lansing, but I would imagine, Izzy, that local government leaders, you know, township supervisors, city councils, probably have a lot of feelings about this measure. What are they saying? Yeah, absolutely. They want to retain the local control they've had for so long. And they're worried about what's going to happen now that they don't have that. Building a giant solar array right outside of town is going to have an effect on the people who live there. Hmm. But on the flip side of things, if you let everyone have a say, 
then nothing gets done. At least that's according to the folks who were pushing for this legislation to get through. Yeah, because the power they're losing isn't nothing. I mean, they've, the townships have had a lot of power yeah. here. Yeah, absolutely. Michigan's local governments have had some of the strongest local control over these kinds of projects in the country. So this is going to be a big change for folks across the state. Okay, let's move on to a different measure in this big package of climate legislation. This is a new requirement that 100% of Michigan's electricity come from clean sources by 2040. What's going on there? Right. So the centerpiece bill in this climate package requires utilities to get all of the energy they provide from clean sources by 2040. That was passed along party lines. It's based on Governor Gretchen Whitmer's climate plan. And it's a big change for a state like Michigan that is really heavily reliant on fossil fuels. How do we compare then to other states? Right. So that 2040 target for clean energy is one of the most ambitious goals in the country. It brings Michigan in line with states like Minnesota, New York, Connecticut, and Oregon. I called around to a bunch of folks as this legislation was getting finalized. One of the people I talked to uh, is Tim Minotis. He's the deputy legislative and political director for Sierra Club Michigan. This really marks the first swing industrialized state in the country to pass such sweeping legislation. Yeah, sweeping is a good word for it. I mean, this is a huge change, Izzy. It is. And there are actually major disagreements about how effective these laws are going to be. Democrats see it as a really important step towards addressing climate change. Um, they also kind of tout these benefits that are going to come with it. You know, more than 100,000 uh, clean energy jobs, billions of federal dollars to the state, but Republicans argue that this transition away from fossil fuels is going too fast and that it's going to destabilize our grid and hike up costs. So 100% of Michigan's electricity will need to come from clean energy sources by 2040. What does the legislation define as a clean energy source? <laughs> Lots of debate around this question. What lawmakers have settled on is that clean energy includes nuclear power, natural gas that's coupled with carbon capture. That's a technology where you take carbon and store those emissions from uh, natural gas plants. Renewable energy is also in the mix. That, of course, includes solar, wind, hydropower. It also includes things like gas produced by landfills and biomass, which is burning organic matter like wood. Democratic Representative Betsy Kofia serves part of Northern Michigan. She says the state's lower chamber hotly contested what counted as clean. We are a single vote majority, and um, in order to get all of our colleagues on board, we did have to come up with uh, something that everybody was willing to vote yes to. Still, she says it will ensure that the state will see more renewable energy like solar and wind. Right now, we're spending $18 billion a year uh, importing uh coal and other other fossil fuels from other states, by by transitioning and adopting these standards, we are going to see significant uptick in investment in things exactly like wind and solar and, and have energy independence here in Michigan for much cleaner technologies. So that's State Representative Betsy Kofia, a Democrat from Traverse City. Um, we've heard a lot about what lawmakers think. What are environmental groups saying? Because it seems like they would be happy about how Michigan is making this giant change in the way it gets its energy. But it seems like that is also not a universal feeling. Many environmental groups really did cheer this on. 
They said it was a huge step forward for Michigan. But some, like the Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition, say this isn't aggressive enough. They also say it will allow companies to continue polluting low-income communities and communities of color. For instance, the bill also includes the state's one commercial trash incinerator as renewable energy. Huan Zhang Chang with the Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition says that poses risks to those who live nearby. If we say that trash incineration, landfills, and animal manure counts as renewable, then we're placing all the burdens in black and brown communities, in poor white communities that will have to endure those like dirty energy sources. He says lawmakers ignored repeated calls from environmental justice groups to address their concerns, and instead they carved out exemptions for utilities. Izzy Ross, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Izzy Ross is IPR's climate reporter. Her work comes to us through a partnership with Grist. And you can learn more details in her full article, which is up at IPRnews.org. We'll be right back. Did you know you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts. From an Iraq war cover-up to towns ravaged by opioids to the roots of our modern immigration crisis, Embedded explores what's been sealed off and undisclosed. NPR's original investigative podcast reveals why these stories and the people behind them matter. Listen to the Embedded Podcast, only from NPR. Welcome back to the Up North Lowdown. I'm Ed Ronco. This past Wednesday marked the opening of firearm season for hunting deer. But this season, there will likely be fewer hunters in Michigan, which means more deer. And it's also a source of worry for those who pay attention to the deer population in our state. They say that the rest of us should care about this, too. IPR environment reporter Ellie Katz explains why. It's a chilly November evening, and the sun's starting to set in the woods outside Traverse City. Oh, there's some deer droppings. I'm tromping through some state-owned land with Nia Becker. We're scouting the swampy, forested area where she last harvested a deer, seeing whether it might be a good place to hunt again this season. So yeah, they're totally... I gotta get the, the whispers. I don't like You never know which one of them might be listening to your plans. Becker, who's 29, didn't start hunting until about four years ago. She's a forester, and she says she noticed how the deer were affecting the forest's ability to regenerate. That sparked her interest in hunting, but her main motivation is pretty simple. I would say, you know, top reason because the deer are delicious, and it's also a great way to have a local source of food. I think there's a lot of pride that comes from being able to basically harvest your own food and provide for yourself. Becker is not your typical Michigan hunter. She's young, she's a woman, a person of color, and she didn't grow up hunting as a kid. And while more women are hunting in Michigan now versus 20 years ago, the number of hunters overall is declining. The Michigan Department of Natural Resources estimates that by the end of the decade, the sale of hunting licenses will have decreased by 50% from its peak in 1995. The fees from those licenses make up the bulk of the DNR's budget, but the problem extends beyond just the DNR. 
the two real services that hunters provide is one is their population control of, of an animal that they're hunting. And two, through this purchase of licenses, they're helping to fund conservation in America. That's Sean Riley. He's a professor of wildlife management at Michigan State University. With fewer hunters, deer populations are growing in almost every part of the state, and they likely won't stop. That could mean more deer to run in front of your car, more deer to eat your freshly planted hostas, more deer in yards and forests and roads. So why are there fewer hunters now? This is another, yet another effect of the baby boom moving through the population. And the baby boom was probably the most heavily involved with hunting. There's also just more competition for people's attention these days. But Riley says there could be another explanation. More people have moved to Michigan's cities and suburbs, where they tend to view wildlife as something to protect and live with, instead of something to use for purposes like hunting. And until attitudes change, deer populations may continue to grow until they become a real problem for people. We've created a situation, sort of in the name of protection, that's now changed the behavior of the animal and its interactions with humans that leads people to consider them pests. In some parts of Michigan, that might already be the case. People don't see a majestic creature to gawk at or even a source of food. They see an annoying threat to their garden or their yard. Nia Becker, the hunter, mainly harvests antlerless deer, like does and young deer. In fact, the DNR went so far as to write an open letter urging hunters to do exactly that, since it helps slow the pace of population growth. But it's a difficult ship to turn. A little over 85,000 deer have been harvested so far this season in Michigan. Only about a third of those were antlerless. Becker says she hopes that changes. But the key to getting more folks into hunting in general? She says it might just be a reframing of how people think about the activity. I guess I don't always necessarily consider myself a hunter as like part of my identity. I consider it more just so something I like doing. Maybe that can draw more people to it is like, you don't have to be a hunter to hunt. Like there's a whole diverse suite of people who are either hunting or wanting to hunt. You don't have to be the stereotypical hunter to be able to do it. I mean, I guess I am wearing flannel right now, but. <laughs> but it keeps her warm. And maybe, she says, with things like better public deer blinds and more awareness of how easy it is to access state and federal lands, new people might give it a try. That story came from IPR's Ellie Katz. Let's find out what else made news this week in Northern Michigan. Michigan's Office of Civil Rights charged a Traverse City hair salon with discrimination this week. The owner of the Studio 8 Hair Lab posted comments on Facebook last summer saying that trans people should not seek service in her shop, but instead go see a pet groomer. It sparked outrage, protests, and official complaints. The state says that the post, which has since been deleted, essentially says the salon will refuse to provide service based on gender identity, and that that qualifies as discrimination under the Elliot Larson Civil Rights Act. The salon owner's attorney says his client did not discriminate against anyone and that her comments and the expression of her religious views are protected by the First Amendment. 
The auto worker strike was one of the factors behind an increase in Michigan's jobless rate in October. The numbers came out this week with the rate going up two-tenths of a percentage point to 4.1%. The UAW strike against the Detroit 3 sent workers to the picket lines and resulted in layoffs by suppliers. The state's labor market information director, that's the person in state government who pays really close attention to this stuff, says the rate also went up because 23,000 people have joined the labor force in Michigan. The labor force is defined as people who have a job, but also people who are looking. Finally, we pause for a moment to remember Dean Bowl. He was president of Interlochen Center for the Arts, our parent institution, and he made a big impact here. But for those of us who work in public radio, he also has another legacy. Hi, we're back. You're listening to Car Talk on National Public Radio with us, Click and Clack, the Tappet Brothers, and we're here to discuss cars, car repair, and serious business. Yeah, serious Before his time at Interlochen, Bull worked for National Public Radio, NPR, where he hired Tom and Ray Maliazzi, better known to longtime listeners as Click and Clack, the Tappet Brothers, the co-hosts of Car Talk. Well, this is serious. This is a list of little sayings that are all serious. Here's one. If at first you do succeed, try not to look too surprised. (laughs) (laughs) And he created Performance Today. A national classical music show that we air on Classical IPR. From APM, American Public Media, this is Performance Today. I'm Fred Child. Coming up, Laura Downs in concert with the Detroit Symphony. Dean Bowl is survived by his wife Ellen, two sons, Jed and Brett, and three granddaughters. He was 92. That's it for the lowdown this week. We had contributions from Izzy Ross, Ellie Katz, and Amanda Sewell. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Max Copeland is our producer. I'm Ed Ronco, and we make this podcast at Interlochen Public Radio. We would love it if you would rate the Up North Lowdown and leave a review. You can do that through your podcast app. It helps people find us. And if you like what you hear, tell your friends to listen as well. Don't even ask. Just just tell them. A reminder last week that we asked you for thank yous. We are still accepting them if you haven't submitted yet. Thanksgiving is obviously next week, so now is the time to do that. You can just email us, ipr at interlochen.org. Send us an audio file of what you're thankful for. We want to know. One last thing. For Halloween, we had three pumpkins outside the front door here at IPR, each with a letter carved into them, I, P, and R. And then some squirrels ate away at those letters, so instead of IPR, they just said, ooh, which was also appropriate for the holiday, I suppose. Anyway, our office manager, Alex Harriman, took those pumpkins home and fed them to her chickens, who went absolutely wild. And so we leave you with the sounds of Rosita, Juanita, Dorothy, Hildegard, and Cosette, five of Benzie County's most prolific egg makers feeding on some gourds. May your own feasts this coming week be as joyful, hopefully a little tidier as well. Or not. We won't judge. Have a good week. Classical music has always been a part of video games, from the earliest arcades to today. 
On Gameplay this week, we'll hear works by Wagner, Debussy, Beethoven, and plenty more, sometimes used note for note, and sometimes rearranged in surprising ways. I'm Keith Brown. Join me for classical music in video games this week on Gameplay. You can stream full episodes of Gameplay on demand and view playlists at GameplayShow.org.